Welcome back to the Borough Shire podcast, where we aim to talk for 20 minutes and we usually talk for an hour and a half. I'm Brandon Vaught, one of the co-hosts, and I'm here with my best friend, Father Blake Britton. Father Blake, good to see you. Likewise, always wonderful to be with you. I just said before we started recording this, like, hey, I got a meeting coming up. Maybe we can just try to keep this one to only 30 or 40 minutes. And you just cocked your head back and laughed. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll laugh because typically that's how our phone calls go, right? So I just need to run something by you about this or that. And 45 minutes later, you know, so like, we've had Vatican Council three. <laughs> when I see my all the church's problems, right? I see my phone and you know it says Father Blake Britton calling, and my first instinct is to flip up to my calendar and like, do I have anything over the next two or three hours? Because I know if I pick this up, it's probably going to end up that way. <laughs> that's why I just keep my calendar perpetually empty. You know? so <laughs> you can just have that conversation at any point in time. <laughs> nice. Well, today we're going to be talking about how to read the Bible. That's the topic of this episode. And you could take that in many different directions. And we kind of wrestled with what direction to take it in because there were a lot of people who wrote us saying, can you talk about the Bible? Can you give us some tips on reading the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Again, a bunch of ways to look at this. For example, you could say how to read the Bible means, you know, what book do I begin with? How do I start? How do I get into it? How do I create a, a consistent pattern of reading the scriptures each day? But while interesting, and maybe we'll do an episode on that later on down the line, in this one, we're going to look at more how to interpret the Bible. So when we say how to read the Bible, how do I make sense of it? How do I read it rightly and avoid uh, wrong or misleading interpretations? A lot of this is really timely because um, friends and followers of, of my work and the work of Word on Fire will know that we just came out with this beautiful Word on Fire Bible. This is actually volume one called The Gospel. So it only has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Super thick. I think it's 600 plus pages um, because it's filled with all sorts of artwork and commentary and sermons from Bishop Barron and all sorts of beautiful stuff around it. But as we release this Bible, which was intended for people with limited biblical experience, this question was at the forefront of our minds. You know, how can we help people to make sense of this book? I remember as a Protestant, Father Blake, a lot of times the Bible was presented on its own. And the suggestion was just pick up the Bible and read it. It reminded me of like what Mormons will often say about the Book of Mormon. You know, you know that the Book of Mormon is true because if you just pick it up and read it, you'll feel a warm, burning sensation in your bosom, you know. And a lot of Protestantism wasn't too far away from that. It was kind of just like, just pick up the Bible, read it. There's the Protestant doctrine of perspicuity, which means, you know, it, it's clear. It'll make sense to you, especially in the things having to do with salvation. But that's not necessarily a Catholic view, is it? Right. No, not at all. And and one of the important things that's very important for us to distinguish here is between the Word of God and sacred scripture. So what you're referencing to, of course, is the sola scriptura of Martin Luther, and then later on that becomes a rallying cry for the majority of Protestantism, meaning based on the Bible alone. It's only on scripture itself that we build our faith. You often hear, is your church a Bible-based church? You know, and I always tell Catholics, Say no, no, it's not, right? Because the Christian religion can't be built on a book. It has to be built on a person. The Second Vatican Council was emphatic on that, specifically in their document entitled De Verbum, the Word of God. Now, in this document, the council distinguishes between the Word of God and sacred scripture because they are not the same thing, meaning they can't be conflated 
into one another. In the end, what is the word of God? If I were to ask that to the majority of Christians, they would say the Bible, but that's not the correct answer. The word of God, first and foremost, is not a book, it's a person. It's not something that's written down upon a page, but rather is inscribed upon flesh. St. John, the evangelist, teaches us this fact in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Likewise, the ancient church fathers, specifically the Greek fathers, so think of people like Origen, Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, these men would always refer to the word of God as Christ. So anytime that you would read any of their writings and they say the word of God, they're not talking about the Bible. They're always talking about Jesus himself. He is the word of God. And they would designate the Bible as sacred scripture, which von Balthasar defines based on the definition of the church fathers as the Holy Spirit's testament to the word of God. So the sacred scripture is the Holy Spirit's preaching, the Holy Spirit's instruction about the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. So that's a very important tension, a creative tension, if you will, to hold in balance and to not conflate those two definitions. In Protestantism, the reason why the definitions were originally conflated is because, of course, they negated the incarnation, meaning they denied the sacramental character of Christ, the sacramental character of the Church, through Eucharist primarily, but also through the other seven sacraments. So when you no longer have the medium by which to encounter the incarnate Christ, which is the sacrifice of the Holy Mass and the other sacraments of the church, reconciliation, confirmation, well, that medium must be replaced. And where that medium was replaced, where that sacramental encounter with Christ was replaced, was through the Bible, which now becomes defined from the Protestant perspective as the Word of God. There's a whole lot more that can be said there. Maybe we'll go down that rabbit trail another day uh, in regards to Protestant versus Catholic views about divine revelation or how God has revealed himself. But Father Blake, you mentioned one of the key turning points in the 20th century for Catholics' understanding of the Bible, and that is this centerpiece document of Vatican II called Dei Verbum, which again is word of God, so it's on divine revelation in general, but it focuses a lot on sacred scripture, and it led and was intended to lead toward a revival of personal scripture study among Catholics. And we've seen a lot of that. We haven't fully realized that vision. I think every Catholic would agree, but just look around you at the number of Bible studies at parishes, you know, study Bibles, books about the Bible, Catholic Bible teachers, Bible stuff on social media. Um, that wasn't the case a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. Um, it, it just wasn't common for ordinary Catholics to be as devoted to the scriptures as our Protestant brothers and sisters. And so Right. That is yet another grace of Vatican II. And again, we've been promising a whole episode on Vatican II for a while. We'll have to get there, but trying to stick here with the Bible. So Catholics, we, we don't embrace sola scriptura, as Father Blake said. So that's one way we don't read the Bible, meaning we don't just read it in isolation from the rest of divine revelation and the rest of the magisterium. Second, and Father, I want to hear you talk on this. We don't read the Bible literalistically. What, is, what do we mean by that? Yeah. So meaning that every single thing that's said in the Bible is empirically, scientifically, verifiably true. So there are different levels of truth. 
this is very important for us to appreciate as Catholics because there's an intellectual subtlety here that's incredibly essential to our faith. Let me just note that even the early Protestants did not have a notion of fundamentalism. So people like Martin Luther, King Henry VIII, were very much influenced by the Catholic hermeneutic, meaning the Catholic lens of interpretation. And this is why, for example, Martin Luther defends the Immaculate Conception, right? So he has this deep Marian devotion. Uh, so early Protestantism, I would not, which we call high church Protestantism, cannot be lumped into this category of fundamentalism. But later development Protestantism did start having this notion of everything in the Bible having to be factually meaning empirically, verifiably, scientifically true. And that's never been how the church understands the Bible because there's a deeper truth in the empirical. You have this sense of the transcendent truth. For example, did God make the world in seven 24-hour days? The church has never held that notion as a magisterial universal teaching because that's not the truth which the book of Genesis is trying to transmit. There's a deeper truth. The, the illustration that I always use when I'm teaching this notion of mythical truth, which again doesn't mean fake, it means a deeper sense of truth, versus scientific empirical truth, is in storytelling. So as moderns, it's very important for us to know the data. When we learn about George Washington crossing the Delaware, we want, to how, we want to know what temperature it was, how tall George Washington was, did he really have wooden teeth, what color clothes was he wearing, how deep was the Delaware that day, and what was the water temperature, right? Those are things that, that matter in our storytelling. To the ancients, none of that matters. To the ancient Jewish mind, to the ancient Greek mind, and to the ancient Christian mind, the way that they would tell George Washington's crossing the Delaware would be like this. George Washington, standing 12 feet tall, boarded a mighty ship, gilded with a golden robe to cross the mighty rivers of the Delaware to fight the red dragon on the other side. Now, the listeners of that story would know that George Washington's not actually 12 feet tall, that he's not actually wearing gold, and that there's not actually a dragon. But they know something more important. See, they don't care about how tall George Washington was. What they care about is the character of the man. What they care about are the deeper truths of who he is. So his being 12 foot tall means that he was a man of grandeur. His golden fleece is a symbol of his virtue and purity. His mighty ship is a symbol of his courage. The red beast is a symbol of the great evil of the British army at that time. So these are the truths which an ancient storyteller is trying to transmit, including those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. So that's the distinction here between fundamentalism, which does not, it does not really dive into the deeper truths of things such as the book of Genesis or things such as the book of Job or the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, and they settle for just having this, this superficial interpretation at the cost of the deeper truths that are trying to be transmitted. So we as Catholics are much more formed in so far as trying to find the deeper truths that the storyteller at that moment inspired by the Holy Spirit is sharing with us. Okay, so those are two ways that Catholics don't read the Bible. One is we don't embrace sola scriptura. If, if you just come to the Bible in isolation and try to read it, you'll almost inevitably go off the rails in terms of understanding it. But then the second one, which Father Blake just explicated, is that we don't read the whole Bible literalistically as if it's just one long scientific historic treatise. Uh, let's look at some of the ways that we do read the Bible, some of the principles that undergird Catholic scriptural interpretation. So the first one, and it piggybacks on what Father Blake just said, is that regardless of whatever passage or book within the scriptures we're reading, we must be critically attentive to genre, to genre. We need to recognize what type of book this is, otherwise we're bound to misunderstand it. A lot of times, we, we tend to think of the Bible as just 
one book. Um, but as most readers will recognize, it's a whole collection of books, you know, 67 if you're a Protestant, 73 rightly if you're a Catholic. So it's a whole slew of different writers and periods and genres and styles. It's so diverse that for any particular part of it, you have to ask that question, what genre am I reading? Otherwise, it's like the analogy commonly used is someone going to a library, walking in the front door, and someone asking them, hey, do you take the library literally? It's like, well, like what part? Like maybe if I'm in the biography section or the science section, yeah, you know, because that's kind of what they're trying to convey. If I'm in the poetry section, if I'm in the narrative fiction section, the sci-fi section, each of those different sections of the library requires different interpretive tools, but you won't even begin to pick up the right tools until you know what section you're in. So it's critically important to recognize the genre of whatever book you're reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most certainly. All right, let's move to a second one, and I want to spend a little more time on this. Um, from time immemorial, not time immemorial, that's too, too much of an exaggeration, back to the earliest days of the church, and I'm thinking <laughs> here of the, the earliest church fathers, the church has offered a multi-layered interpretive scheme. Traditionally, there's been four types of um, interpretive levels of scripture. That's probably the best way to say it. Four interpretive levels of scripture. At the top, the first and most fundamental one is the literal sense. And I'll get to what that means in a second. And then beneath that, you have three other versions which are lumped together as the spiritual senses. And these include the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Super fancy technical words that are probably meaningless at this point. Um, but maybe, Father Blake, uh, before getting into the sp specifics of each of these, why is it important that we recognize any particular passage of Scripture? There's not just like one and only one way to understand it. There's multiple layers of meaning. Yeah. St. Augustine explains this the best in his treatise on sacred Scripture when he mentions the fact that Scripture itself is rooted in the Word of God, meaning the Word made flesh, who is Jesus Christ. The Word of God is Jesus, and He is infinite. He is inexhaustible, which means that sacred scripture, as that which is nourished by the Word made flesh, also has this inexhaustible quality about it. What I mean by that is not that it tells a bunch of different kinds of truths, but rather it tells the same truth, the truth of Christ and our salvation, but in this richly hued way, in a whole spectrum of ways. And it's important for us, if we really want to get to the meat of sacred scripture, to be informed and guided by the Holy Spirit, who is the author of this sacred scripture, to, so that we might understand all the different colors and the different ways in which just one verse of the Bible can be said. One of my professors in seminary, he made, made a 700-page thesis on one scripture of, of the Bible. <laughs> one verse of sacred scripture. And so if he could do that just for one verse, imagine what we could do with the entire set of the Bible. I remember this was like a big paradigm shift for me when I converted from Protestantism to Catholicism because one of my worries coming in to the church was when I become Catholic, the church is just going to tell me what each verse means. And it seemed overly restrictive. I thought as a Protestant, I'm just here with my Bible. I might listen to a pastor. I might read some books, but I, there's kind of a uh, a liberal freedom to, you know, figure out what this means for me. And I thought this big oppressive church is going to restrict a lot of those interpretive options. But what I found was quite the opposite, that 
when a Catholic reads the Bible, there are some, you might say, guardrails where the church will say, this verse emphatically does not mean this. So a, a good example is like John chapter 6, which talks, uh, is Jesus's bread of life discourse, where Jesus is describing the necessity to eat his flesh and drink his blood for eternal life. The church has multiple times said, this is not meant to be only interpreted in a metaphorical spiritual sense, that Jesus really was literally telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, that doesn't preclude the spiritual interpretation. It's just saying it can't only be interpreted that way. So as long as you're within those guardrails, almost any other interpretation would fly. So I found becoming Catholic that in some ways the options were more interesting and more expansive. You know, you read the church fathers and for any particular verse, there's like 10, 15, 20 different angles at it, you know, different different ways you could understand it. And that's what these four senses of scripture are meant to convey. So, um, let me, and on that note, I think it's important to say the magisterium, and this comes straight from Fulton J. Sheen, it's like drawing the outlines of a basketball court. Hmm. If there's no court, there's no game. You know, we, we don't know where to go. If we're just freelancing in our understanding of theology, philosophy, and our understanding of sacred scripture, we might go in a dangerous direction. The reason why the church puts up those guide rails is not to constrict us, but rather to allow us the freedom to play, to mm-hmm. allow us the freedom to really understand the depth of truth so that we don't become a docetist or an Arian <laughs> heretic or a Sibelianist, right? So that we don't fall into some of these false teachings and misinterpretations that have gone before us. The church in her history has seen a lot of mistakes we don't need to redo them. And she's going to protect us from doing that. It, progression is always hindered by the, repeti- by the repetition of fallacy. So we, in order for us to really progress in an authentic way, we need to know the tradition and allow that to guide us to move forward authentically. Okay, let me run through these four senses, and I'm not going to go super in-depth in them, but they are really fascinating, and I think will we'll take your personal reading of Scripture to a whole new level if you start using them and master them. So first of all, the literal sense. So St. Thomas Aquinas says that all other senses of Scripture are based on the literal. So it kind of is the most important one. And what it means is reading the particular passage in a way that the original author intends. So you're trying to pull out what the original author was trying to convey. So this is where all the, the great tools of contemporary Scripture scholarship come into play when we talk about the historical critical method and form criticism and textual criticism, all these experts and academics piecing together uh, with great confidence what the original text said and what the authors intended, all of that has helped to shape this literal sense. What was the author of this passage originally intending to convey? Now, the problem with a lot of modern scholarship is that it kind of stops there and that that's like what the Bible is or what the Bible means. But as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit is operating even while these authors are writing to convey things that even the author didn't intend. And that's where we get to these next three senses, these three spiritual senses. These are things that the Holy Spirit is bringing through the scriptural text. Maybe the original author didn't intend it, but the Holy Spirit did. And if God's the ultimate author of scripture, then we need to be attentive to these. Did you want to say anything about that, Father Blake? Yeah, it's just, it's beautiful that notion of how even back going to Thomas Aquinas, who's a medieval theologian and philosopher, but also back to the ancient church, how they had this sense 
of the necessity to understand the original intent of the author. And that is crucial for us to also appreciate particular details that are taking place. I know there's a hesitancy, especially nowadays in modern Catholic biblical scholarship, towards exegesis and towards historical critical method, only because, once again, it has had negative ramifications insofar as a lot of people stop there, like you said, Brandon. But if we continue to pick up that baton of historical critical method and take it to a deeper level, which is the mystical, theological understanding of sacred scripture, it's really enriching. One such example that is the most touching to me is the woman who is struck with bleeding, who touches Jesus' cloak in secret. Now, through exegesis and through studying first century Judea, we're able to understand what actually is taking place in that transaction. So a lot of us will think, well, she's touching his coat secretly to protect herself. But that's not actually what's taking place. In ancient Judaic law, if a man touched a woman who was bleeding, he was considered unclean, which means that Jesus would have to go through a public purification ritual before being allowed to worship in the temple or being even allowed to preach in public again. So the woman touches Jesus secretly, not for her sake, but for Christ's sake. And this now leads to the amazing event of Jesus publicly recognizing her, which is not just to bring her out of shame, but is putting himself into shame. He willingly chooses to embarrass himself. He willingly chooses to make public the event of his ritual impurity because the greater good is her dignity as a beloved daughter of the Father. So having that little bit of exegetical historical data totally enriches and changes that story to a deeper level than we could ever imagine. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I get a little hesitant toward a lot of Catholics sort of bad-mouthing historical critical scholarship, contemporary biblical scholarship, and it has a lot of flaws, to be sure. That's a whole other podcast or another episode, but that one's important. We need to grasp the literal sense of what the original authors intended to convey. But then let's go deeper, and this is what the Church Fathers especially help us to do. Um, Henri de Lubac, one of the leaders of the Communio School of Theology in the 20th century, uh, was instrumental in reviving and repopularizing the, this fourfold sense of Scripture to say, let's go beyond just the literal sense and unearth these three senses. And uh, here's how they're traditionally categorized. So next up is the allegorical sense. This is the second one. This one involves reading any event in the Bible by recognizing its allegorical implications vis-a-vis -vis Jesus Christ. So how does Christ appear in this particular Old Testament passage? How does it point forward to Christ? Or reading passages from the New Testament, what does it reflect about Christ? So it's reading all of Scripture in light of Jesus Christ. Um, a common example is the Exodus story. So the church fathers love to play with this story, reading Exodus in light of Jesus. They would say, for example, that Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea to escape the Egyptians, just as Christ takes his people through baptism to escape sin and death. In the desert, God gave the Israelites manna, you know, which was this heavenly bread-like substance to sustain them on their journey, just as Christ gives his people the Eucharist, the bread of heaven. So you see how that works. You're kind of reading any passage from any part of the scripture in light of Jesus Christ. You're looking as at uh, allegorical symbols that point their way to Christ. Right. And this sense of scripture is typically called typology. That's the technical term for it, meaning that everything in the Old Testament is a type of what will be realized in Christ and in the church. So you even have women of the Old Testament, specifically Eve, being realized in the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
you have the 12 tribes of Israel as a type of the 12 apostles, which established the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So this notion is very important and does deeply enrich our understanding of sacred scripture. For our viewers and listeners, if you want a prime example of this that is incredibly inspiring, I turn your attention towards Origen, who is one of the ancient church fathers. He has two commentaries, one on the book of Genesis and the other one on the Song of Songs. In my opinion, among the most beautiful homilies and reflections on sacred scripture from the ancient church fathers um, by far. And I know that that's a bold claim to make considering who Augustine and Basil and all these other, but few can compare with Origen in his eloquence and his ability to draw out the allegorical sense of sacred scripture. Okay, so we've got the literal sense, what the authors originally intended to convey. And then we have the allegorical sense, which involves reading the events in the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ and through uh, other people like Mary and through the lens of the church. So looking for allegories or types that point to Jesus, the saints, the church, Mary, etc. Next up, the third one is the moral sense. And this one's pretty straightforward. It means reading a passage with a view toward how it shapes your behavior. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most devotional Bibles take this approach, right? So as a when I was a Protestant, you go to your local Christian bookstore and there's, you know, a hundred devotional daily study Bibles. You could find a study Bible for any niche. You know, if you're a man who likes to weld, you can get the men's <laughs> welding study Bible, you know, right? But most of them are meant to help you to apply a particular scripture passage to your life in a way that like you would behave differently as a result of reading that scripture passage. And that's what this moral sense is about. If you look at a passage, say, from one of Paul's letters, you read it, reflect on it, and then ask yourself, how do I live differently because of this? How does this change the way that I behave. Um, another example would be Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, if you're reading that parable at the allegorical level, you would recognize that the Good Samaritan is a type or a foreshadowing of Christ, that Christ himself is the one who picks up people from the end of the road and carries them to the inn, which is a type for the church. But from a moral reading, it, it's much clearer that we should help people in need and that our neighbor is anyone who's in need, even if they're an ideological opponent. So you see how you could take the same passage and read it at different levels and unearth totally different gems. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the final one. This is the anagogical sense. Anagogical comes from a Greek word that means leading or pointing toward. And this refers to reading a passage in light of our eternal destiny or the, the end of time. Um, and a good example here is Psalm 121, which says, I rejoiced at the things that were said to me, we shall go into the house of the Lord. That one often comes up uh, in masses and in the breviary. Now, if you read this Psalm in a literal sense where the Psalmist is talking about going to the house of the Lord, he's literally referring to Jerusalem and its temple. That's what he has in mind. That's what he was trying to convey. But if we read that anagogically, we're reflected, we reflect on the fact that we're being led to the true house of the Lord, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, which is our ultimate destiny. Or you could read it as leading us into the church, which is, you know, the, the new temple here on earth. So again, anagogical means looking to our eternal destiny, looking to the future. But what I want to emphasize, we scratch the surface of these four senses, is that for any part of the Bible, there's not just one meaning, one 
way to understand it. There are multiple depths, multiple levels of meaning. And again, for, for Catholics, that should excite us. It means you will never exhaust the reading of sacred scripture. You will never just read it and think, okay, I think I got it. You know, I'm pretty much done. I understand what it's trying to say. It's an inexhaustible fountain of, of meaning and, and insight. There's a tendency to read the Bible and see how it personally applies to me. This is a popular method that, that developed specifically in the 60s and 70s, and you'll hear this all the time. So I remember being part of some Bible groups, and they'll sit in a circle, and we would you know, read the Bible and say, what did this scripture mean to you? And that's more of a superficial, again, understanding of sacred scripture. It is important to know how the Bible applies to our particular lives, but there has to be a preliminary, deeper understanding of scripture in the light of tradition, and in the light of these different senses that we were speaking of. So so what I always tell people just in a very summarized way is anytime you read a verse in scripture or a story in scripture, don't just read it at face value. First and foremost, ask, how does this relate to Jesus Christ? Second, ask, how does this relate to Mother Church? And then third, ask, how does this relate to me? But in that order. So it needs to start with Christ, it needs to go to the church, and it needs to go to me. And when I say church, I mean in the context of all salvation history. So there's sort of another way to, to practically apply these different four senses of Scripture so that we don't fall into the trap of just making it personal literature as opposed to the Holy Spirit's testament. You know, over the years, one of the things that God's called me to is a ministry to atheists. So I have a, you know, a deep heart for people who just can't find good reasons to believe in God. So I've interacted with thousands of atheists over the last 10 or plus years, mostly online. But one thing I'll find is that the Bible is always a sticking point. Atheists will always say, well, what about this verse or that verse? Or when God does this or God does that or orders this or orders that. And what I find time and again is that the objections are usually rooted in a misunderstanding of how to read the Bible, which leads to another principle. And the principle is not everything that is in the Bible is what the Bible teaches. Super important. Not everything that's in the Bible is what the Bible teaches. So, for example, just because the Bible records people doing bad things, it doesn't mean the Bible endorses that behavior. So, for example, in the early parts of the Old Testament, um, you still find uh, Moses permitting things like divorce or slavery or punishments that we today would consider egregiously harsh. It wasn't because Moses was endorsing and approving of those things, but God was slowly revealing his moral law over time and had to make concessions to allow things to progress gradually. And so they were permitted for a period before they were definitively rejected. But if you just open your Bible to, say, Leviticus or Numbers and find one of these laws and say, see, see, the Bible teaches slavery is okay, or the Bible teaches you can stone an adulterous woman, we need to, again, affirm that not everything that's in the Bible is what the Bible teaches. Another valuable principle. Yeah, and that's where you go from a childish understanding to an adult understanding. And there is a lot of people in the world right now, and it's our fault. It's the church's fault. Um, it's our fault as Christians, even with our Protestant brothers and sisters as well, that we haven't done a good job really maturing adult Christians bring them up to speed. So a lot of us still have the same understanding of the church and the Bible that we did after we received our first Holy Communion. And so we're still stagnant at that place. And we have to develop an adult understanding of how the scriptures were constructed, why, who the ultimate author is, who is the Holy Spirit, 
and how the Lord over it, within history and through history over this time period helps us to eventually reach the high point of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, the Lord. What Christ is, who Christ is, what he teaches, that is the guiding principle of the entire Bible, not some obscure writing in the book of Leviticus. It's Jesus Christ, and it's his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. This is our hope, as St. Paul says, and this is what should be the basis of all study of sacred scripture. Let's wrap up with one final principle, and I know this is going to get you going with excitement, that we should always read the Bible in the heart of the church yeah. and with the church. And so at, at one level, that means any interpretation you derive that is at odds with what the church magisterial teaches is de facto a bad or misguided interpretation. So you need to read the scriptures in light of the church. But more importantly, the scriptures should literally be read in the church, in a liturgical context. This is something, man, that was like an epiphany when I read it as a new Catholic convert, that the Bible is a liturgical book. It was compiled for the liturgy. The, you know, the early councils that developed this book were trying to pick books that, that were divinely inspired to be proclaimed at the liturgy, not so every Catholic could just open it on their lap and try to make sense of it privately, that the Bible is a liturgical book. Say more about yes. that. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm happy. I just looked yeah. at my watch. Happy I'll, uh, to have 45 minutes yeah. <laughs> um, to, to speak. So I'll just, perfect. I'll sign off and let you talk for an hour and then I'll come back. <laughs> a great segue. So the illustration I use typically in my homilies, as well as when I'm teaching for people's sacred scripture is imagine if you were to walk up on a human hand, but you never saw a human being ever before. So you just, you just saw a piece of the human body in complete isolation from the body itself. Well, you would have no idea why we had fingers or fingernails. You would have no idea why the hand had nerves. You, you would have no understanding of that particular part of the body because you have to see it in the context of the whole. The same thing with sacred scripture. It is impossible, and I'll repeat that again, it is impossible to fully and properly appreciate sacred scripture outside of Mother Church because to do so is to try to understand an organ outside of its body. Mother Church existed, pre-existed the New Testament. Mother Church is the one who birthed from her encounter with the living Christ, the four Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the writings of St. Paul. It was this living encounter with Jesus through the sacred liturgy, which also pre-existed the New Testament, that allowed for us to now have a written testament of Christ. So in order for us to ever really come to a full understanding of sacred scripture, we have to understand that in its original purpose and its original context, which is the sacrifice of the Holy Mass and the sacramental life of the church. This is when all Christians would read scripture. As you said, Brandon, Brandon, they would never just take it and read it in isolation by themselves over and over again. The letters of Paul, the great Philippian hymn, as we're so uh, many of us know so well, uh, though he was in the form of God, Jesus is not the equality to God, something you grasped at. That hymn was written for the liturgy. <laughs> That's why it's called the Philippian hymn, or as one of the kids in my school said, the hymn to the Filipinos. Right? <laughs> 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 and I said, oh, no, no, <laughs> let's change that. But that's why these different scriptures were written for the sake of worship, for the sake of the sacred liturgy, for the sake of the Holy Mass. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, if you've got <laughs> follow-up comments, please share them with us. You can go to burroughshirepodcast.com, click on this episode, and then you'll find recommended books and resources. And then we'll also have some comments. I'm going to leave some links to some books that I recommend that will help you 
to better understand the interpretive tools that Catholics use, but also, I think just as importantly, to help you understand the grand narrative of Scripture. We didn't really talk much about it here, but it's helpful to understand the overarching story of salvation history when you're reading any particular book. So you can figure out, oh, okay, here, you know, we're in, say, Act 3 of the drama, and I get what, what happened before and it built up to now. So I'll recommend a couple books in the show notes there that'll help give you that grand picture. Any final concluding remarks from you? Yes, I encourage every single Christian, because I know we have non-Catholics who also listen, even atheists who listen to our podcast, which is, again, welcome and such a blessing to have you with us. But I encourage specifically all Catholics, please start reading your Bibles. I mean, this was an express intention of the Second Vatican Council, that more Catholics would come into a deeper appreciation of the sacred scriptures and the tradition of the church. And it's our duty, if we're to dialogue with the world, it's our duty if we're to increase our fraternal love and brotherhood with our Protestant brothers and sisters. It's a duty if we are to defend our faith and help others come to a deeper understanding of it who may not have an understanding of the Christian religion. It's for us to know this great source of revelation, which is the sacred scripture, the Holy Spirit's testament to the word of made flesh, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, I strongly encourage you to read the sacred scriptures and allow it to be the first and primordial text of your spiritual life. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Borough Shire podcast, and we'll see you in the next one.